Today we are continuing our seven-week series through the book of Esther. We have been exploring what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes the people of God. The events of the book of Esther take place as the people of God are in exile. They're living at the mercy of a foreign government, the Persian Empire. And God called his people to submit and honor and serve and pray for the empire, to seek its welfare. But Mordecai and Esther have had to learn to do that, learn to do that faithfully. They started out hiding their Jewish identity and scheming for power and influence. But they were, they were forced out of their hiding, right, when a man named Haman convinced the king to permit the annihilation of the Jewish people. So at this point in the story, Esther has helped the king to recognize Haman's treachery. Haman has been executed, and Mordecai has taken his place as second in command. And so by the end of chapter 7, it's, it's reasonable to assume that this story is pretty much coming to a close. But it continues on for three more chapters. We have not yet reached a happy ending. And this is why. Haman's genocidal decree is still on the books. Haman is dead, but the Jewish people are still facing annihilation. This means that Esther and Mordecai are going to have to find a way to undo the decree and deliver the people of God from the lingering forces of evil, from the curse of death, if you will, that hung over them. Now, as I mentioned last week, we are told in chapter 8, verse 10, that the wrath of the king has abated. Following the execution of Haman, the wrath of the king abated. And this is actually bad news for Esther and Mordecai and the people of God. If they are going to undo the decree and deliver the people, they need the wrath of the king to persist, not to abate. And so Esther is going to once again have to muster the courage to enter into the throne room of the king uninvited, which was punishable by death. Chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther... Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. But at this point, we learn that Haman's original decree is, is actually irrevocable. Apparently, in the Persian Empire, once a decree had been signed and sealed, it could not be taken back. So, verse 8, the king says, You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, in my name, and seal it with the king's ring, my ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So, Haman's decree cannot be taken back. But the king gives Esther and Mordecai permission to draft and seal a counter-decree, a decree in opposition to the original decree. And so they needed to be very careful, very intentional with the wording of this new decree. 
For this plan to work, they need a counter decree that can go toe to toe with the original decree. They need a counter decree that is just as strong as a decree ordering a kingdom wide genocide. They need this decree to serve as a warning. Those who sow the destruction of the Jews will reap their own destruction. They they ought to have learned this from the example of Haman. That the God of Israel does not take kindly to his people being attacked. Jeremiah 30 verse 16. Yahweh says to Israel, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. You don't mess with God's people. So, verse 11. Mordecai sends letters throughout the entire empire saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. So basically, the empire is gearing up for a one-day civil war. Now, the the language is very strong here. Uh, Children and women included, and to plunder their goods, right? But if we were to look back at chapter 3, to Haman's original decree, we could see that the language used here is almost exactly the same as the original decree. In fact, some scholars think it might be a quote from the original decree. Again, they need something that's going to go toe-to-toe, just as strong. But, and and this is important, the Jews are not permitted to attack anyone. The Jews are merely permitted to defend themselves. And so this is self-defense. It's a decree permitting self-defense, not murder. And really, if you think about it, the, the decree is designed to discourage violence. And notice one thing. The counter-decree gives the Jews permission to plunder the goods of those who attack them. I I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to this topic of plundering at the end. For now, put yourselves in the shoes of the governors and officials throughout the empire who received this new decree. With a strongly worded counter-decree that matched the force of the original decree, the governors and officials were faced with a difficult decision. With two contradictory decrees, both sealed by the king and equal in force, what would they choose to do? And it seems as though Mordecai anticipated their dilemma. Look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So as the, as the governors and officials are trying to decide how to interpret these contradictory decrees, Mordecai once again parades himself through the capital city. 
This is not Mordecai being prideful. This is a politically savvy move. Mordecai is the highest ranking Jew in the empire, and he's wearing royal robes and a golden crown, which should make it clear to everyone which side the king is really on. Evidently, the king opposes Haman's original decree. Evidently, the king is siding with the Jewish people. And those who decide to attack them might be committing an act of disloyalty to the king. And notice what happens as Mordecai marches through the city. The people receive him with shouts of joy. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The, jo- the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. But more than that, verse 17. In every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Think about that. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Many from the peoples of the country publicly identify themselves with a group of people who were facing annihilation. This speaks to the power and attractiveness of hope and festivity and good news in the face of darkness. The power of darkness is nothing compared to the power of light and gladness and joy and honor. So this this chapter of the book of Esther, I think it directly corresponds to the chapter of history that the church is living through. The world is still living under a decree of death, but the king has issued a counter decree. A decree of life, also known as the gospel. In every province and in every city and in every nation, wherever the king's gospel decree reaches, there is gladness and joy for all people. And many from the peoples of the world declare themselves Christians. And so the mission of the church is a parade. 2 Corinthians 2, which Eric read for us, calls it a triumphal procession. The mission of the church is a victory march. In the face of darkness and death, we march with light and gladness and joy and honor. Robed as royalty. We carry with us a decree on behalf of the one true king and the whole world is being asked to pick a side either cling to the old decree of death and be destroyed or heed the new decree of life and join the parade. This way of thinking about the mission of the church is is beautifully captured by a singer-songwriter who goes by the name Son of Cloud. He says, We have come to bring light to the land that the darkness does hide. We are here to restore years that the locusts have stolen. And the world will hear music in the streets where we gather. And the sound of our sorrows will be traded for laughter. And our sons and our daughters will not bear the shame of their fathers. For the battle has ended and the victor is for us. For the veil was torn away 
by the sound of our parade. The mission of the church is a victory march. So as we see in in chapter 9, the the vast majority of the citizens of Persia have no interest in attacking the Jews. In fact, the governors and officials all throughout the empire agreed to assist the Jewish people. And those who did seek to attack them were easily defeated. The Jewish people are finally delivered. But chapter 9 is begging us to notice something else. On three different occasions, verses 10, 15, and 16, we are told that the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. They destroy the sons of Haman, but they take no plunder. They defeat their enemies in Susa, but they take no plunder. They defeat their enemies all throughout the empire, but they take no plunder. What's going on here? Remember, Mordecai's counter-decree explicitly permitted them to take plunder from those who attacked them. So why would they choose not to do so? Perhaps the author wants to make it clear that the Jews were not fighting for the sake of material gain. They weren't in it for the money, which I think is true. But it runs much deeper than that. The Jewish people had deeper reasons for refusing to plunder their enemies, and those reasons have roots in the book of 1 Samuel, which we looked at last week. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul is commissioned by God to blot out the Amalekites, who were longtime enemies of the Jewish people, and from whom Haman was a descendant. In addition, King Saul is explicitly commanded not to lay hands on the plunder. Saul disobeys both commands. He disobeys by failing to fully blot out the Amalekites, and he disobeys by plundering them. So here in Esther chapter 9, King Saul's descendants, Esther and Mordecai, are finally blotting out the Amalekites. And this time, they are being careful not to take the plunder. But wait a minute. At the beginning of chapter 8, the king gives the house of Haman to Esther and Mordecai. Haman is defeated, and the plunder is given to Esther and Mordecai. So, so which is it? To plunder or not to plunder? Well, I think there is an important distinction to be made. Esther and Mordecai did not plunder the house of Haman. The house of Haman was handed over to the king, as was the custom following an execution. And from there, the king entrusted the house of Haman to Esther and to Mordecai. They did not plunder. They were entrusted with it. Remember, Haman is a serpent figure. Haman represents satanic opposition to the people of God. He plots the destruction of God's people, but his plans are thwarted and reversed, and he ends up hanging literally on a gallows of his own making. And the same is true of the victory of Jesus over Satan, whom the Gospel of John calls the ruler of this world. So Satan is described as the ruler of this world, just like Haman, The ruler of this world has now been defeated and replaced. There is a new ruler of this world. 
And he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The house of Satan has been handed over to King Jesus. And King Jesus has entrusted the house of Haman, the house of Satan, to his bride, to us, to the church. Now, in Matthew 12 and Mark 3, Satan is depicted as a strong man who must be bound so that his house can be plundered. Satan has been bound by Christ so that we can plunder his house. That's what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is an invitation to plunder the house of Satan. To plunder the entire world in the name of Jesus. And we do this by sending out a decree of life and redemption. The gospel. And we send it to every corner of the kingdom of darkness. We plunder the darkness in our own hearts. Get rid of it. We, we plunder the darkness within our church community. We plunder the darkness out in our neighborhood. We plunder the darkness all over the world. We're reclaiming the world from the former ruler of it. We're subduing this world from the kingdom of darkness and we're giving it back to the king of kings. And again, how do we do that? What does, what does Christian plundering look like? It looks like a parade. A parade in the face of death. Gladness, joy, honor, celebration, singing, feasting, holiday, Sabbath rest. We are living out in practice a victory that has already been won in principle. The decree of death still hangs over us. The curse still hangs over this world. But the king has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, right? The decree of death still hangs over us, but the king is on our side. And so we know that his new decree, this decree of life will defeat the darkness once and for all. And so we can go ahead and start celebrating. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good and gracious and merciful to deliver us from this curse of death. Not because we deserved it, but because you are a keeper of promises. You are faithful to us. Jesus, we have come here today to join in your triumphal procession, your victory march, and we are humbled and grateful to be here. We, we thank you for the work that you have done on our, on our behalf. We praise you as our King. And Holy Spirit, be with us as we plunder the darkness, the darkness within us and the darkness around us. Make us... Make us into lights. Make us brightly shining lights in a dark world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.